0: On this edition of Hoopsology, we welcome Ollie Cosell, editor-in-chief of the Bird Rights on SB Nation. We get his opinion on the state of the New Orleans Pelicans. He has interesting insight regarding Zion, new head coach Zan, Zan Van Gundy, and more. Then Matt and I discussed the NBA returning on Christmas, Um, Stan Van Gundy being hired by the New Orleans Pelicans, the latest saga in the Dwight Howard, Shaquille O'Neal beef, and then JR Smith commenting on the 2020 Lakers being better than the 2016 Cavs. And now our guest, Ali Cosell. Right now we have our first guest, His name is Ali Cosell. He is the editor-in-chief of the Bird Rights on SB Nation, and he's the co-host of the Bird Calls New Orleans um, Pelicans podcast. How's it going, Ali?
1: It's going great, guys. I can't complain. New Orleans Pelicans finally have a head coach. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) For sure. So let's let's hop into it, Ali, and... I really want to get your opinion because headed into the bubble, the Pelicans were probably one of the most anticipated teams um, headed into the NBA restart. So uh, before we get into the the new coaching hire of the Pelicans, Kia, you, you give your perspective on how you thought the Pelicans handled the bubble um, and, and why do you think it didn't go so well for them?
1: Sure. Yeah. As everybody knows, so much was written about them, right? They were basically considered the favorite even though the Memphis Grizzlies had a decent lead on the rest of the pack to grab in a spot in the playing tournament and, of course, grab that ace suit. But you know what? They fell flat on their face. And David Griffin, you know, the general manager of the New Orleans Pelicans, really the executive vice president of basketball operations. But, you know, a lot of people just call him the GM because he makes, you know, the ultimate decisions, the final decisions. But he had said that anybody going in the bubble really needed to be into it 100%. You know, you need to be engaged, you need to be fully committed, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, some teams showed that they were, and other teams did not. And the Pelicans, unfortunately, were ones that did not. And I feel like what was really problematic was that first game. They had a 16, 17-point lead, something like that, in their opening game against the Utah Jazz, and they proceeded to lose that game. And after that, boy, the wheels really fell off to where they had some really miserable losses to where the effort wasn't there. And we hadn't seen that since the start of the year where they had a 13-game losing streak. So it was a big turnaround in expectation, in performance, whatever you want to say. They did not meet any kind of expectations. So what transpired is what I think fittingly, right? Alvin Gentry was let go. They decided to pursue a new direction. And even though David Griffin said Alvin's not being let go just because of the bubble performance, it was pretty obvious that the team did not – you know, rise to the occasion. They're a bunch of young guys for the most part, the core group. And, you know, when, when you're just failing to give the effort in the opening minutes to where you're just running out, closing out on defenders, where you're, you know, you can tell when a player is really giving it their all. And for the Pelicans, guys, this was their playoffs, right? This was your opportunity to shine. And like other teams, like the Phoenix Suns and others that performed well, they did just the opposite. So, like I said, it was a vast disappointment. So it wasn't a surprise that they quickly moved on from Alvin Gentry. You know, they fired him in the middle of August after they went two and six in the bubble. And since that time, they took their time trying to find a head coach, but they have found one. And I felt like they needed a super turnaround as to where Alvin represented such a versatile, such an open system. They needed somebody that was going to bring in more discipline, more accountability. And I feel like they did that by hiring uh, Stan Van Gundy.
0: And what do you make of this, this phenomenon of Zion Williamson? Because um, he plays into you know Stan Van Gundy's you know, future in terms of his long-term success. So just kind of, kind of recapping and thinking about this season, what are your impressions of Zion? Is he kind of the franchise player that a lot of NBA fans and insiders hope that he's going to be? Or do you think the hype's a little bit overblown? And is, is he possibly a negative for this franchise?
1: No, I, I think you nailed it with the first point and the fact that he is a generational talent. He showed that in just his little sample size of games. Once he was able to play starting January 22nd, you know, he dominated in his minutes and touches to where very few rookies have ever even mimicked close to the production. And, and all you've got to look at, even though he stands six, 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 seven, he was the best paint score that we have basically maybe ever seen from a rookie let alone, you know, may, maybe um, for the size ever, right? He he was getting all these touches and he was scoring at such a high efficiency that it proved that even though he wasn't at 100%, that's what people need to realize. When he came back, yeah, he had his four-month layoff and, and he was rehabbing the whole time, but, you know, he was still carrying a little bit of excess weight. And, of course, he wasn't adjusted to the NBA game speed. He did not know his teammates, yet he put up, what, about 22 points, or so, seven rebounds a game on, like I said, fantastic shooting percentages. So he has a spot in the NBA. And I think, like I said, he's going to be a generational talent. And he's going to live up to it because of how much he dominated. The problem was, was that, of course, some injuries crept up. But before that, he still needs to learn so much, guys. It showed defensively. It showed with certain other aspects with uh, rebounding, rebounding and maybe a little bit of playmaking, the ball handling, you know, anything that comes comes with the territory for being a 19-year-old, hitting the ground running in the league, right? I mean, he went from basically training camp, playing some exhibition games, to then sitting on the sidelines for four months and then being asked to jump right in the fray for a team hoping to make the playoffs. And I thought he did incredibly well. So the stats were there. The eyes basically told you that he really is the real deal. So, He lived up to that. The problem going forward, of course, is going to be rounding out his game and, of course, getting his body to the condition it needs to be to play for 82 games because I think that's the key in today's game, right? You've got to be on the court for as many games as possible, playing as many minutes as the coach needs you to. I think that's really what it boils down to for all the teams that don't have a LeBron, don't have a top-five player. They need to have their best guys on the court, and the Pelicans did not have that last year. Right, that's why we saw basically a tail of two cities. They got off to a miserable 6-22 and 22 start. And then once shortly before Zion came back, they turned things around. But after he came back, they went on a 22-14 to 14 run. So that's why the expectations were there for the bubble. They are really playing great ball, top 10 offense, top 10 defense during that good stretch. And they fell flat on their face. But Zion, he was just a kid. He was learning. Everybody knew this first season. I was told from people inside the Pelicans that, this was not going to be a make it or break it year. This was just basically these are one of the rare moments where you get to have fun. You get to see what your roster is. And of course you get to see what this rookie can do. So I think he, he did well. He represented himself well, he represented the city well, but I think he learned what he needed to do both from a standpoint of being on the court. And of course, with his body and conditioning.
2: I, I agree with you on a lot of those points, Ollie. And um, I was wondering if, if we could dive into that, you know, when you mentioned, you Zion is potentially a generational talent. I, I completely agree. Uh, so immediately, of course, my mind goes to, like, watching LeBron James, his rookie year. Um, can you kind of compare and contrast Zion and and maybe why he needed a little bit more time off the court? Is it is it really simply a conditioning thing and and being cautious of injuries. And of course not, not wanting to, you know, push him into injury in his, his very first year Um, is, is there kind of more X's and O's types of things that Zion needs to pick up on compared to like LeBron in that rookie year. I I just think it's kind of interesting to compare and contrast them because they both kind of came into the league with like NBA ready bodies and NBA ready athleticism Mm -hmm. Um, so can you speak to like some of the maybe similarities and differences that you see between them and why maybe we had to pump
1: the brakes a little bit more with Zion? Yeah, sure. The similarities are pretty obvious. I mean, they both had such explosive bodies and athleticism coming into the league as what, 18, 19 year olds. And so that immediately translated into great on the court production. Um, Zion, if you go back to what he did at Duke, really exemplified what he was able to do and dominate both sides of the ball. Um, I remember there being one game in college where uh, Duke was trailing, now I'm trying to remember, Was I think it was Louisville. They were trailing some team by close to 17, 18, 19, maybe, it was probably like 20 points entering the second half. And he basically took it on, put it on his shoulders to bring Duke back on both sides of the ball, coming up with steals, key stops, and of course scoring on the other end. And that's basically what we saw LeBron do, right? He came into the league to where he just basically just played, and his talent was so far superior than most of the guys he was playing against, and it shined. And it led to basically at least great moments, but usually some wins, right? The Cavaliers were a really bad team. And I remember that opening game, or excuse me, LeBron's first game against the Kings.
0: And even mm-hmm. though it wasn't
1: a super statistical game, what was it? He scored like 18 points or so, had eight, seven, eight, nine assists. You saw the talent in this guy. You saw that explosiveness. So we saw the same thing really with mm-hmm. Zion, like St. Cogs, but also in his first game against the Spurs. You know, he was quiet. He was held to, I think, just a couple of buckets against the Spurs in the first half. And then he exploded in the second half to where, during less than a four-minute stretch, he scored like 17 points. I know he nailed, what was it, four three-pointers, but, but the point is, he was grabbing these rebounds, pushing a break, making a pass up the court, um, and of course, scoring to where very few can do that, let alone rookies. So from that extent, yes, LeBron has that certain ability just to take over a game like LeBron does, but I think we also need to differentiate him from LeBron in a few aspects. And with, with number one basically being, he plays a different position. You know, at Duke, mm-hmm. he wasn't relied upon to be the main playmaker, to be the engine, like LeBron was always accustomed to being all through his high school days before he hit the NBA. You know, Zion was more just like, we'll get the ball to him, and then he's just going to take the game over. And we kind of saw that this year with the Pelicans. So he, 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 he I would put him more in the mold of he has the ability to maybe grow, maybe grow his game, I think, towards where mm-hmm. he's going to be, that playmaker, Maybe, you know, maybe I'm thinking six, seven assist tops, but he's never going to fully beat LeBron, right? He's not going to dominate every possession to where you can just rely on him for X amount of possessions down a stretch or, or whatever. But the point is, when you do get him the ball or when you need him to do something, he'll do it. So, you know, you, you hate making these lofty comparisons, right? Because he plays so little in the NBA. But I really do think it's justified to say that he's some kind of hybrid to me between a Dominique Wilkins, maybe a little bit of Blake Griffin, and somebody that can handle the ball and pass the ball a little bit better than maybe those guys have shown. So it's going to be real interesting to see. It's really all going to boil down to his stamina, building up some of those skills, because he entered the league with a really good skill set. We didn't really see too much of it in his rookie season, but we saw a lot more at Duke. So I just think, that tells us that he really needs to get that physical conditioning really under control. So when that happens, then I think it'll be more apt to make, like I said, these lofty comparisons, but until then we can still keep dreaming because we did see a lot that you have to like.
2: I agree. I mean, he certainly passes the eyeball test. Like he, he's just one of those players that jumps out on the court to you when, when he's on the floor. Uh, So that's, I think always a great sign for a rookie. Um, I wanted to kind of, Flip things up a little bit and ask you about uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a sore spot for Pelicans fans, but but I wanted to get kind of your reaction to Anthony Davis winning the title with the Lakers and kind of the sense that New Orleans maybe had. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know it's it's bittersweet to watch someone that uh, that developed in your organization go somewhere else and and win a title. Do you have a sense that, Um, I mean, what is the sense of how the Pelicans fans feel towards Anthony Davis? Is it kind of a good riddance type of thing? And can you speak to just how the organization Mm -hmm. maybe feels about AD winning the title this year?
1: You know, he was always loved up until his last season here in New Orleans. He was always given a pass for not being that aggressive type A personality to where you understood he didn't have it in his skill set to take over a game like a Kevin Durant or, or any one of the top five players, maybe top ten players in the league. You know, he always needs somebody to help him get started offensively because he couldn't create on his own. But, boy, he could do everything else on the court. And, and we saw that this year with the Lakers. When he, he plays next to a sidekick like LeBron, he's, he's, he's such a, a beast that's so unstoppable. And, of course, he can ride that guy to titles. And to me, hats off. But like every other, you know, New Orleans faithful, you, you will always remember his final season here. And I started mm. hearing rumors about him wanting out of New Orleans, say, late November, early December to where first it started showing up on the court. Right. There was these lapses by the team. They got to four and start that year um, back in 2018, 19. And, of course, they had suffered a couple of key injuries, right? Alfred Payton, their starting point guard missed some time. Nikola Muratich missed some time. And, like I said, injuries really decimated that starting lineup and their firepower. But more the problem was, like I said, you started then seeing Anthony Davis just not living up to billing for certain halves. I remember there was a game they went to Miami, and, boy, did they drop an egg in the first half to where right from the tip. I mean, these guys didn't have that effort. And, that, and it's on a on a good player, right? It's on the best. On the best player on the team to really lift your team up when they're either not performing well, whether they're going through the motions, whatever. But Ad's never been that guy. But either way, that happened all too often previously. But it really shined, like I said, his last year in New Orleans, to where everything was counted on, on for him and for Drew Holiday, because they had really performed so well in the 2017-18 year, to where they got it in the playoffs, and they of course swept the Blazers, and they, they took a game from the Golden State Wars. Many many thought that they would be able to take more, but you know the referees weren't on the side. But either way, you expected so much that they would maybe build on that, but especially Anthony Davis, and that did not happen. So like I said, they came out a little bit flat the next year after getting off a hot start, and you saw it in AD's performances. And like I said, then I started hearing these rumors that he was checked out, that he had signed with Clutch the previous summer, and the reason was because he wanted out. And from what I've learned is that You know, the Pelicans organization knew that that was a bad omen. As soon as he signed, it it was pretty much a ticket, one-way ticket out of town for him. And so it wasn't surprising that finally that day came that he asked for for the trade. What was unusual and what hurt New Orleans guys was the fact that it it was the method he did it in. You don't, in the middle of a season, when when you still have playoff aspirations, and for a guy that's always said, New Orleans first, I'm going to live up and play out my contract to suddenly request a trade-out. And it was almost the way he did it. He did it through his agent. It it, it was through the media. And then when the news was first announced, he didn't even make uh, any media appearances. Who had to speak on his behalf in the first day following that request was Drew Holiday. AD refused to come out and talk to us that first day. So that's what stings New Orleans, right? It was the fact that he didn't own up to what he basically wanted. And then you just... Fast forward through the rest of the year where, you know, the NBA basically forced the Pelicans and Alvin Gentry to play him, you know, at least some minutes. So he was playing every other game. He's playing about, you know, 20 minutes a game, usually just in the first half. But, you know, it wasn't for wins or losses. It was just for show, just because the NBA asked that you put the guy out there. But it was in his final uh, game of the year to where he wore a That's All Folks shirt. So like I said, he was still kind of giving it to the fans, whether it was through his actions or, you know, or, 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 or you could just tell through his words, but he was never in it. And then once the decision was made to leave, it, it, it was just on his sleeve. So it, it just rubbed everybody the wrong way. And like I said, that that for a city like New Orleans, if you guys have never been here, this is a deeply proud city. I moved here almost 20 years ago now. And it's one thing I've learned. These people are committed. So when, when, when you do right by them, they'll do right by you. It's one of the nicest... Com- communities I've ever been and I've traveled all over the world so I can understand why they were upset so AD working or, or I'm sorry winning the championship with the Lakers didn't bother me but it'll always sit in the back of my mind how he left It's so that's going to kind of limit on how happy you can get for the guy right because he really forced the trade but he did more than just force it that's where most players will use behind the scenes type of words through their agents and other management and whatever other parties are required. AD and um, Rich Paul just made it flat out known, we want to just go to Lakers and Lakers only, and we're going to slap you guys in the face as many times as you want. So like I said, that, that's always just going to be there. And you know what? He always promised a goodbye. He always said, look, when my time comes, I'm going to always say goodbye to the city. And he never did that. He never took a page out in local paper, never published something on Instagram, etc. cetera. So it, it's just bitter feelings. So I think that'll probably exist for a while, and it's unfortunate because I honestly think he, to date, is the best player New Orleans has ever had in franchise history, even better mm-hmm. than Chris Paul. But because Chris Paul left on more decent terms, he'll always be remembered more fondly, and that's a shame because AD, like I said, was so beloved. Everybody liked the kid because he was such a genuine, good-hearted kid, but he didn't have you know the personality to lead a team, so therefore you gave him a pass. But when you know, push came to shove – he shoved us, and, you know, it's hard to just say bygones be bygones. So, yeah, it's something I think guys honestly will live for, for eternity, and I'm curious to see exactly how maybe five years from now people view him. But from New Orleans' perspective, I don't think a lot of things will change.
2: Yeah, fascinating. And I, I think to me personally, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of old school. I became a diehard NBA fan in the 90s, you know, growing up watching Jordan as, as we are uh, mentioning earlier, we were chatting about the last dance briefly. Um, but to me, it's it's kind of a big reason. Uh, a lot of the things you mentioned about how Anthony Davis left, kind of both LeBron and he coming together in L.A. kind of makes the title feel, for me as a basketball fan, a little more hollow in L.A. because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the significance just isn't there as much as it would have been if say LeBron had stayed in Cleveland or Anthony Davis had stayed in New Orleans obviously less of a personal connection maybe compared to LeBron in Cleveland but but still I I've I've always just been a fan of you know kind of more like a loyalist I know that's that's kind of silly and outdated in in this era of the NBA um but you know quickly in hindsight being 2020 you know it, it never seems like there's a good way for major star players to leave a franchise like famously Carmelo Anthony, let the nuggets know early on he was going to be leaving and was booed for several weeks, maybe even months before he left. One of our good buddies is, uh, is a Denver Nuggets fan up there and uh, mm-hmm. was among the people booing him. Do you think there's the, the move might've been for Anthony Davis to wait until after that playoff run rather than midseason? Was that the big thing or, you know, hindsight being 2020, what, what might've been the better etiquette? I mean, there's always going to be pain and it seems like there's never a completely right way to do it, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think without a doubt, he should have come to management and said, look, it, it's just not going to work. I, my heart is elsewhere, either at the start of that year, you know, 2018, 19. And you know what? I don't know if you guys have heard this, but he had told his teammates in training camp to expect a trade. Alfred Payton revealed that in a radio interview. So this, mm-hmm. this isn't something that I'm, I'm pulling out of thin air. AD knew he was headed out of town. The, just, the only question was when. So he either needed to leave that summer when he signed with Clutch. And so then, of course, the honest falls on Dell Demps and uh, management at the time to basically make that happen. Cause they knew his heart was elsewhere or AD need to play out his contract and at least give his all through that season and then wait for next summer. The fact that it came before the trade deadline. And, and this was at a time, if you guys remember the Lakers were struggling, they needed the help. And here's another thing. I don't know if everybody knows but AD, his number one idol is without a doubt, LeBron James. I've been told by, this by people close uh, to both players. So AD grew up with his reverence for LeBron, and I don't know when it started. It may have started before he entered the NBA, but I know a big part of it was grown during the Olympics um, when he spent time with Kobe and LeBron, the team that won back in, I believe it was 2016. But, you know, it's it, it just excuses to me at this point because with you recalling MJ and uh, years prior, Good players, the best players always seem to stick it out, right, with their teams. Like Dominique Wilkins was always an Atlanta Hawk. Even teams that didn't win, their best players wouldn't just flat out ask to leave and join up with somebody else because they couldn't make it happen. Right. That's why Kevin Durant took so much flack for leaving OKC for the Golden State Wars. You know, it, it's just something that hadn't previously happened in the NBA where these great stars that you depend on expect to basically want to be the guy. To bring a championship to their city on their own, or at least be the biggest reason why. And so when it doesn't happen, you know, I I still think that that sits sorely, right, with fans, with media, um, you name it. So, you know, I think this is probably just going to be a trend that we're going to have to live with, right? I mean, people know that, look, NBA championships is really the biggest um, marker on how great of a career is. And then when you add in the fact, like I said, AD had had this desire to play with the person he's looked up to the most in the NBA and, of course, wanting to live in L.A., I think all of that goes into it that, you know, we live in these different times to where players now know they have more power, they have more leverage. So they're going to use it and or at least be forced to use it by people around them, right, telling them whether it's family, agents, et cetera. Basically, tell them you can make this happen. You want to go somewhere else? We can make it happen, and we saw that you know really transpire with Rich Paul and AD.
0: So, Ali, I want to ask you in terms of the hire of Stan Van Gundy. What lessons can he learn from the from the Anthony Davis situation in terms of Zion? Since I agree with you, I think he is a generational player. What can he do to make sure that you know this go around? Goes a lot better compared to the Anthony Davis situation. Can he cultivate Zion into that next generational talent that a lot of people think he can live up to?
1: Yeah, that's the hope. That's what David Griffin is betting on, and the rest of the New Orleans Pelicans front office. Uh, because at the you know the bottom line, I think nowadays it's winning. Does your team win enough to basically keep that superstar? That can then you know if you're not meeting his expectations. If you're not at least competing for championships, then he's going to look elsewhere. You know, I kind of think we're looking at that now with Giannis. You know, with Milwaukee, with a the disappointment they just suffered in the playoffs, to where you know his previous stance was, look, I, I, I don't need to go anywhere else. I'm, I don't m- mind that Milwaukee's a small market team, but sh- things sure look like they changed with, like I said, Milwaukee's uh, post most recent postseason. So it'll be curious to see how that plays out, but. You know, I think with what Stan Van Gundy can do at least is he's going to provide the accountability, but he's also going to provide the teaching that I feel like is necessary for a young group. That was the biggest thing that we all noticed that were closely following the Pelicans last year is that that team was just given too much freedom and especially offensively to where they were allowed to make mistakes, but there were no repercussions. You know, Lonzo Ball would have some really poor games to where he really didn't even deserve minutes. And I know that Alvin Gentry eventually did remove him from the starting lineup for a minute. But for the most part, the guys that you expected to be either in the starting lineup or given major minutes were. And I think that's a problem for a team that's not meeting expectations, one with a losing record. So, like I said, Alvin Gentry is a great basketball mind. I got to know him really well in his time here in New Orleans. But he's just more befitting of a more veteran team. I feel like a young squad really just needs better direction. They need structure. And that is one thing that was really lacking last year. So even though the team ran off a good, you know, 22 and 14 record after the middle of December, up until the pandemic, they were never really looking that solid. They never learned how to close out games defensively. They were just always poor. So I feel like that's what Stan Van Gundy can do for you. He doesn't care whether you like him or not, but he's going to get his point across. And usually the results have been there, right? You saw the success he had with, The Miami Heat, when he first hit the league, of course, with the Orlando Magic, boy, they came really close to winning a championship. But during his whole time there, they were considered a really good team, and they played defense well. They rebounded. They kept turnovers to a minimum. And you saw that kind of, you know, uh, creep in the Detroit system, too, because he took over a really bad team. And even though they only made the playoffs once in his four tries up there, they still really improved markedly, especially on the defensive side. So that's what everybody feels like here in New Orleans. They have so much firepower, guys. Brandon Ingram was just an all-star, and he, he's a certified 25-point scorer because of his length, his ability to get his shot off from anywhere in the court. He's become such a potent three-point shooter. And then you've got Zion, who's just unstoppable. So you've got two Cogs that can basically score the ball really well without NBA defenses being able to stop you. And when you surround them with good shooters like they have in Redick, one uh, Moore, um, Josh Hart, you name it, they've got really good three-point shooting. This team offensively is never going to struggle. So you need that improvement for this squad, if you're going to keep them together, to come on the defensive side and, of course, closing out games. So they were one of the worst clutch time teams. For those that don't know, I mean, that's everything. Most games come down to the wire, where it's at least going to be five, six, seven points difference at some point in the fourth quarter. But, boy, New Orleans blew almost all of those last year.
0: So, Ollie, I want to kind of get your opinion and shift towards – the 2020-2021 season. And a lot of league insiders say that it might resume around Christmas time. What is your opinion of starting the season uh, relatively close to the conclusion of the bubble? Do you think that timing is perfect considering a lot of fans want the season to resume around Christmas Day? Or do you think it should start maybe in February, March, maybe when the pandemic's um, been put under control a little bit where there's more fans in the arenas?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first reaction was I hated it, right? I mean, we were told kind of and David Griffin and other GMs echoed it that you're, they're gonna the NBA that is is gonna wait, give it some time before they you know start or basically start the next season up. you know, the thought was they would be willing to wait sometime even into February if it meant getting pretty much a full season in and getting a lot of fans in. Well, I think they've pivoted from that. Simply because they they don't they no longer see that as a realistic uh, option, right? There's no vaccine coming tomorrow. They know that by looking at what Major League Baseball is doing, the NFL, that this is the reality probably for at least another year. So instead of starting say in February, why not you go ahead and start in December? That way you don't ruin the following season. You don't affect the Olympics. You know you don't basically throw again for a loop the whole draft process, free agency, the combines, you name when it's not going to matter in the revenue. So I think it makes all the sense in the world, honestly, and I'm writing a piece now on that that's going to be posted tomorrow on the bird ride, but it's basically going to be calling back that I support the NBA's position and that I think the New Orleans Pelicans as a roster should bring it back on what they had last year because, you know – things are not going to improve enough in a month or two months time. And certainly nobody wants to go through another bubble. So the NBA is just trying to basically get through another season to where they can hopefully make as much money as they can without fans, because that's exactly what they're facing. So no, I don't have a problem with it. And you've got to think they've got a lot of support, right? I think a lot of these teams, um, the owners are going to be in support of this, right? Think about all the teams that didn't go in the bubble. When's the last time they played, right? It was before the pandemic. So they're more than ready to start playing now, both for their cities and from a money-making perspective. And a lot of these playoff teams you know, that exited real quick in these last playoffs in Orlando, they're going to be more than fine with this a little bit quicker time. So the only problem really lies with maybe, say, the Heat, the Lakers, the teams that were you know, deep into the playoffs that the players were obviously hoping for a little bit more rest time. But From everybody else's perspective, there's really nothing to lose by getting going a little bit quicker.
0: Go ahead, Matt. Did you have another question? Oops, sorry, rookie
2: mistake. Microphone was muted. Ali, <laughs> um, I was I was wondering if uh, you could um, enlighten us on maybe a couple things to look for with the Pelicans off season, um, and then also if if you could give us your thoughts on Drew Holiday and if if you see him sticking around long-term for the Stan Van Gundy era, or um, do you think he, he might get moved
1: uh, moving forward? Sure, yeah. The first thing is, like I said, since I'm working on the article, running it back, there's no doubt in my mind that even Joe Drew Hawley has been such a hot name, such a hot topic, such a hot commodity on a trade market for probably well over a year now, he's not going to get moved. Stan mm-hmm. Van Gundy didn't take this job to basically overlook any kind of rebuild where he's got a mentor just a bunch of young guys and i heard one of the biggest proponents of him at least getting interviews was jj reddick you know jj's been in the league now what 13 years or so and he says that by far stan van gundy is his favorite coach because he respects him more than any other he talks about the preparation this guy brings in and some of the stories are legendary guys like usually when teams are you know on the blackboard writing up to game or tonight's game they'll have an assistant write up on a blackboard like tonight's plays what to look for you know highlight the main point supposedly stan van gundy does this all on his own and then he also does it in such a good penmanship this guy's attention to detail i heard is really incomparable so i i just i just feel like that you know you cannot give this guy who was honestly he 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 selected the pelicans because he felt like it was the right situation you know, he's he's basically turned down other job offers or other teams that have come calling said no because either, like I said, they were in a rebuilding mode or they didn't seem like somebody that he felt like he could basically grow with and lead to a championship in the near future. So I think the reason being that he did come here was that I think there was something between he and Griffin where they're going to give it a go with this kind of a win-now mentality, kind of like the one they had last year, right? They kept uh, Holiday. They signed J.J. Redick. And they traded for Derek Favors. So they had a nice mix of bets with the rookies. And like I said, everybody at the start of last year expected them to make the playoffs. David Griffin said that they were going to come out and beat people's asses. I remember asking him the question, you know, <laughs> in, in training camp. And he looked right at me because I asked the question. I'm like, what are your expectations? And he said that line. And that, you know, everybody's been talking about that line since. So I think <laughs> if Griff is, is the type of guy, yeah, it was funny, but I, I was kind of shocked by it. But, Look, Griff is the type of guy that if he sees that this team should be performing better than they are, that there is enough talent, he's going to go for it. So I think that he was he felt this team really underperformed last year, so he's going to give it another chance. That's why they went with Sam Van Gundy and some kind of rookie coach, where there's, there's a lot of great candidates like David Vanterpool, Sam Cassell, you name it. But I think they wanted the veteran coach because they do want to run it back. So I think Holiday, without a doubt, Redick, um, and, and all any other vets that they do bring back from free agency, I think I do expect them to resign favors, maybe even in each one more. They will compete for that pl- uh, playoffs, And so their gauge, their barometer, I think is going to be this upcoming trade deadline. I think if they're still underperforming, then they'll probably stick to move Drew and maybe some of the other guys. But they're at least going to give it a shot because, like I said, it, it's in their blood. It's in Griffin's blood, it's in Stan's blood, and it's in ownership's blood. When the Bensons bought this team, right, in 2012, that was one of the things we learned quickly. Dell Demps wasn't a stupid GM as people make out to be. He was told that you've got to produce a winner now. So I think that mentality exists with ownership as well. So like I said, I think it's pretty obvious on what they're doing here. So, yeah, I expect pretty much the core from last year to start this season. And Stan's going to have his go with it. You know, Alvin failed. Let's see if Stan performs. If they're not doing what they expect to by the trade deadline, then yeah. Then we'll start seeing, of it, seeing some of these moves.
0: Well, Ali, um, thank you very much for um, joining us. Um, you mentioned some of the um, pieces of work you're, work, you're creating. Uh, can you kind of go into what else you're um, working on on podcasts um, and what you're up to on SB Nation?
1: Yeah, sure, guys. Yeah, we're gearing up for the season. I guess we've got to be gearing up faster than we thought concerning this news, right? December 22nd start day, so (laughs) yeah, I mean, the the draft, I mean, it's just around the corner, November 18th, so I'm going to start getting into all the potential draft uh, choices the Pelicans should be looking at number 13, but first, I'm still going to do a little bit more write-ups, like I said, on they should bring it back, on what Stan Van Gundy is going to possibly expect, and what we should expect from him, from an offensive and defensive standpoint, so yeah, we're going to be producing a lot of content, content, but boy, it's going to really hit second gear, right? You hit the draft and all of a sudden we're going to fly through free agency and before you know it, we're in the middle of training camp and the season's going to There's going to be a lot to talk and write about.
0: And uh, where can everybody find you on social media?
1: Yeah, you can find me under my full name. It's at Oli Cosell. That's O-L-E-H-K-O-S-E-L and and or you can find my stuff on the Bird Rights. It's all one word too on Twitter. We also, we're pretty active on Facebook as well.
0: Awesome. Well, Ali, thank you very much for um, joining us. We really enjoyed your insight. Thank you.
1: Absolutely, guys. Thank you.
0: Welcome to another episode of Hoopsology. I am in Goodjum, joined by Matt Thomas. What's up, man?
2: what's up justin in albuquerque they are saying that tomorrow winter is coming how are you doing
0: good man supposedly but we've heard this before you know like you know growing up you know we went to school together so you know you would watch <laughs> the weather around 10 o'clock and they hype up this big snowstorm you wake up the next day it's sunny and it's like 70 degrees so like for sure um, school's getting canceled nope <laughs> right i can wear and shorts now today and now it's terrible for kids because you have to work you have to go to school at home so there's no snow days so you still have to go in so that's brutal for the kids now
2: yeah still doing still doing virtual school in albuquerque it's uh it's always happens at some point over the course of the year where it goes from being in like the mid 70s down to like 30 degrees over the course of a night so we'll see if it happens tomorrow
0: yeah super (laughs) weird but
2: i don't mind it i i'm it's been really nice here. I don't mind a little cold for a little bit anyway. It's always changing out here. What's new with you, man?
0: Uh nothing much. Uh just same old same old. Um normally around this time the NBA season would be resuming and starting we kind of be getting into like the first month of what's been going on, actually kicking off kicking off the season around Halloween. Um, but this, this time now we're, we're in the off season. And what's interesting is that the bubble just concluded and there's been talks of beginning the season fairly soon. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the NBA returning around Christmas, um, also Stan Van Gundy to New Orleans Pelicans. And we're going to discuss another chapter and this to white howard shaquille o'neal beef and we're going to talk about <laughs> jr smith i'm um, stating that the 2020 lakers um are better than the uh, 2016 calves um and again if you want to get in touch through the show i uh, just drop us an email at hoopsology pod um at gmail.com we appreciate your feedback uh, get back to us um we any of your questions, so let's make sure that you have that locked down if you have anything that pops in your mind, well, sing, um, to the show. So, man, let's hop into it, and let's discuss this pending NBA return pretty quickly. And I'm just going to read you this tweet from Shams. Um, he is the reporter for The Athletic, and he says this. Um, the NBA is targeting December 22nd for the start of the 2021 Excuse me, the 2020-21 season and a 72-game campaign that finishes before the 21 Olympics. And also, here, um, another tweet: the NBA continues to prefer in-market play for the upcoming season, avoiding bubbles. Um, Arena protocols were Fans are allowed, um, could be testing and purifiers in buildings. So there is precedent for this in terms of what's been going on just in sports and entertainment, um, particularly college football, high school football. And then, um, and, you know, I, I'll reference this professional wrestling in, in Jacksonville in particular, an open air um, arena type setup where fans are allowed to watch um, the show there. But this is a closed arena compared to those sports for um, footballs in the open air, basketballs, you know, in a closed arena. And I just want to get your thoughts on this on a multitude of levels, Matt. First, from a player rest standpoint. So if you're the Lakers, you've just been through this bubble, a pretty arduous, what, almost three months in the bubble? Um, and you just won the title. You have all of November to rest however like he had to still be in shape for the the season so if this is a true thing if the season's going to start december 22nd if i'm the players i'm pretty upset about this and not to mention the drafts november 18th i mean i i I assume the players from the the draft are going to be participating in this season how do you think this is going to work i i think this works beautifully actually it Mm -hmm. might be a
2: benefit that the players won't have as much time off. If, if you think about it, they got a full off season when we were shut down from March until, you know, July when they started playing again. So it's kind of like you just shifted your off season over there. And I think my, my biggest thing with this that I love to see is that start date around Christmas. I, I think that's something that you and I, you know, have talked about for a long time as, um, being something that would be great for the NBA maybe put you out of direct competition with the NFL a little bit more who let's be honest in in America anyway that's your biggest competition so you get to start your season on Christmas Day that's always been a big day for the NBA might as well make that the kickoff and then the Super Bowl will be over in February and then we can just focus on the NBA quite a bit more so NBA will probably then be stepping on MLB's toes a little bit more. And I think that's a good matchup if you are an NBA fan. And and if you're looking for ratings for next season, and then I, I hope honestly, permanently moving forward, maybe moving this start date to Christmas day. I mean, obviously we'll see a lot has to happen and, and things have to go really well this year for that to be permanent. Um, but you know what? What do you think of that start day? And you know what? What do you think are the potential drawbacks of this? I mean, do you? So my opinion would be, if the players are upset, kind of getting back to your question more so, um, if the players are upset, you know, you can kind of point to having that off season from earlier, as you said. But do you think the players are going to really, like, like the players association might really lash back out on this. Um, I mean, I know the bubble was mentally exhausting. I certainly want, don't want to discount that. But, but I feel like physically, these players should be good to go. Um, I, I would honestly be more worried about teams that weren't in the bubble coming back at this point. But, but at some point, they're going to have to come back to basketball anyway. And it's, it's been a really long break for those guys.
0: Yeah, um, it's an unpredictable situation. I would say, as you know, Matt, I'm in favor of starting the the season around Christmas. Um, No secret about that. I think for the players' standpoint, I wonder how this is going to factor in with low management. There's somebody like LeBron, like you'll you'll play opening day, and then probably I don't know the first month is he gonna play every game? I would say not. Um, same thing goes for Kawhi. Same thing goes for a lot of these players, except the marquee matchups, and that's even more of a incentive just because there's less fans. So for these players, I mean, kind of that that argument of like you know the little kid going to the arena, they have one basketball game. Most likely that kid's probably not going to be able to go because of COVID um, just because of the arena restrictions or with if the, whatever state you're in, it may be no fans in the arena. So that's even more of an incentive to to sit out um, despite, you know, the television ratings aspect of it. So I think the players will get over it. I agree. I don't think it's going to be a huge factor. I haven't heard any rumblings as of this recording of – players being outraged of the season starting around Christmas. So I'm not too worried about it. I think what's for a league standpoint, revenue is at top of mind. So starting the season around Christmas, the negative is that we have all these COVID restrictions and cases are going up. So whether you think COVID is overblown or you think it's really serious, the bottom line is that the states are going to have tighter restrictions. Um, that means less possibility for fans. So the league relies a lot on the rev- in arena revenue. So what Bill Simmons brought up and Jackie McMullen on their podcast is when I start the season in March – April when there's more of a possibility of a vaccine, better treatment, uh maybe we have the cases going down a little bit more in which we can have a higher capacity of fans in the arena. Um starting it this so quickly, um, the, the negative's going to be just a massive decrease in that arena revenue and for the season ticket holders. So I mean you're talking about you know, half of one, you know, half of a season being affected by this and probably the entire season being affected by low or no, um, gate revenue. Um, is it, is it worth it for the league to maybe just wait till March and just kind of take your chances there? I mean, you're right, Matt. I mean, the competition for baseball is going to be prevalent, you know, in March at the same time, this most likely won't be a, you know, March madness. I don't think my guess, um, And I can't think of any other sports really taking up the attention. They would have that block through the summer to themselves. And hopefully if we have some kind of a a treatment or a vaccine available, that could increase fans by the summer. Um, So we could see more of an improvement. But at the same time, the the negative of doing that is the Olympics. And that's a question mark. We don't know how that's going to go. I know from a Japan standpoint, um, just looking at Different entertainment venues. They're opening a lot more. Um, they're allowing fans a lot more. And there's been even been rumblings of maybe even opening up the borders for tourism. Um, that's not a fact, but that's just a rumor. So if that's the case, that could open a door for the Olympics. And I'm sure the NBA doesn't want to um, crash into that Olympic schedule. So overall, I think Christmas is the best solution. However, I think there's going to be some negative consequences just based on the rising COVID cases.
2: Yeah, and I think you're going to have to have things like health check screens at the doors of the arena, of course, um, and I, I'm curious to see what they will allow the arena capacity to be because, you know, 50% probably still too great for an indoor arena, but if if you did 30%, I could see that working really well, and I could see, uh, you know, like like younger parents taking little kids, like... I'll I'll just be perfectly honest. If the pit was open right now for me to take my son to a college basketball game, I would totally do it, you know, provided it's not a hundred percent capacity. I have, I just feel like in our age brackets and things like that, that's something I, I would love to do. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I think so much is changing with COVID still from month to month. I, you know, I wonder if the NBA with, You know, the foresight that they had about the bubble and opening that way and being able to finish the season that way, I do trust their judgment from a fan safety um, perspective and and all of that. So I'm sure that they wouldn't be releasing this Christmas target date if they didn't have, um, you know, extreme confidence in a plan moving forward to be able to actually do that. Uh, Whether it happens or not, you know, it still needs to be approved and everything. But I, I hope it does. I, I hope they can get to it because I, I, I'm honestly just mentally, from my perspective, maybe this is just me, but I, I'm looking forward to, like, turning the chapter on this, like, COVID bubble season. It was great that we got it done and everything, but to see arenas again and just just see kind of uh norm closer to a normal flow of things i i'm really looking forward to so i hope the nba can get it done of course in in a safe manner
0: yeah i agree um i think in terms of your pit scenario with this global basketball i, I kind of disagree with you just from not a safety standpoint but just from just kind of a depressing standpoint i mean i mean how how much capacity is the pit like 16,000 and I don't even know it'll be half that there's in a hypothetical scenario, maybe like 4,000 people socially distance. I mean, it's just not the same, (laughs) Um, you know, the, the pit, I mean, it's core is fan noise. And right. just having fans, I, I get it. It's a sense of normalcy. It's a sense of like, you know, not letting, you know, trying to work within the the virus. I totally understand that. I'm just, I'm just saying from like a fan standpoint, just from just just the feelings that I have, you know, just being growing up here. It would just hurt me, just just me personally, just going <laughs> yeah. to a Lobo game and just seeing, you know, 4,000 socially distanced fans and they're trying to make noise and it's just like you're. You know, you're hearing echoes of this random people. Um, that'd be a bummer. Um, yeah, it'd be like
2: the Diet Pit.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not pretty really, much. not the
2: same thing. I do agree no. with that. Yeah, I more yeah. just mean like seeing live sports.
0: Sure, absolutely, um,
2: of course. I'm with you though. I get your point.
0: Yeah, it would just, it would just really hurt. And I don't, I think from a NBA standpoint, we'll have to see how much that looks on TV. Uh, that's another thing, too. You don't want to see a bunch of like empty sh- seats um, on television. It doesn't look aesthetically pleasing. I know um, Major League Baseball has been dealing with that. It just it just looks weird. So I don't know. It's it's something that, you know, these leagues have billions of dollars. So if this pandemic is under control where we can at least get back to 75 to 100 percent, by this time next year, I think the NBA can kind of like suck it up, you know, and other leagues can kind of take um, the precautions they need for, you know, the next eight months or so. But, you know, if this goes on till like 2022, um, you know, we're, I mean, I don't want to talk about, you know, negative news, but we have to be talking about kind of the future of these leagues. I mean, they can't survive without fan revenue. I mean, OTV's been a huge part of their, um, basis of thriving but you need still need fans of these arenas and the outrageous ticket prices they're charging um if you're not having that that's a huge hit so i think these next eight months are going to be critical in seeing what happens with you know this virus and ultimately you know with these these venues because people dismiss sports um they discount sports a lot but at the same time these are still businesses these are still places of huge revenue for all of these states that host NBA cities, and if that revenue decreases for a long period of time, it's going to affect the economy. So it's it's a massive factor um, in playing into the health of, of these NBA cities. So we'll just have to kind of wait, take a wait and see approach.
2: Well said, yeah. And I, I think you know, being able to get fans back in the stands, I think in a way that would drive the TV ratings up too so that the the leagues aren't as hurt in the TV ratings. You know, we, now, you know, I had said that I didn't really care about fans not being there quite bluntly in the bubble, but I do think that the common sports fan does care about that. And I, I think it, it just feels more important. It's, it's more of a spectacle when you have a packed arena of people screaming or, you know, even if it were like a 50% capacity arena, it would feel, bigger to people watching from home. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I'm not saying that's the main factor for the ratings. It's, it's multifactored as we've talked about, but I think that's something that would give positive momentum, but you're right. It's, it's a big question mark for the leagues. It's honestly a big question mark for society that, you know, ev- everyone's kind of, and, and I don't want to get too far down this road, but everyone's kind of hoping on, you know, this golden vaccine, to cure things, and, and we still don't know 100% if. Uh, I mean, we hear about it, it coming, but we still don't know how effective that's going to be. Is it going to get us back to "quote unquote" life as normal? Uh, we just don't know. So, at, at a certain point in time, and I, who am I to judge when that is? But at a certain point in time, we have to decide when. When are we moving forward, fighting against this? You know, trying to make the best of things. And, and how are we doing that? You know, big question mark moving forward that every sports league is going to be dealing with. So you're spot on with, um, you know, the, the financial hit that you mentioned and the effect on, on sports leagues as a whole.
0: Yeah, that's totally true. Um, Let's move on to some coaching news. Sure. Um, Stan Van Gundy is now the new head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, It's a multi-year contract. And here's just his quote from Twitter. Um, It says, I'm excited to join a talented New Orleans Pelicans team. It will be honored to work with our players and to work with Mrs. Benson and David Griffin. Um, trey landon their staff and the great people of new orleans i can't wait to talk to our players and get the process started um so he's been with the heat magic um the pistons um a a long coaching history been an analyst for espn i think with this hire there's it's very much a similar situation with dwight howard just in terms of coaching like a young superstar player um I think the personality differences so far, as what we've seen from Zion, is that he has been nothing but a great teammate um, and has caused no problems so far. However, um, he's such a high-profile player that you know any kind of negative, I don't know, step in his career is probably going to be blamed on Stan Van Gundy, uh, fairly unfairly. So, what do you make of this coaching hire? Do you think ultimately Stan Van Gundy is the can kind of be, for lack of a better term, the Zion whisperer, and extract Zion's full potential. Um, or do you think this could kind of lead to something negative within the Pelicans and Zion's career? Great
2: question. I personally like Stan Van Gundy as a coach, as a coach, and that's important. And here's why: he started off with the Miami Heat. He was the guy before Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley between that. Pat Riley famously kicked him to the bench and won that title in 2006 in Miami. A sure lot did. of people <laughs> felt, I feel Riley, so, that Stan Van Gundy got a raw deal there. He went and coached in Orlando. He was the coach with he, – he was the greatest coach of Dwight Howard ever. Um, he, he got Dwight Howard to be that defensive presence, I mean, the, the greatest – center of his generation i would say um and that that was in large part due to the system that stan van gundy built in orlando there then so i would say successful overall run in orlando he got them to the finals Um, then he went to he he took a couple years off went to detroit and was both the coach and the gm and that did not work out well at all, I think most people would agree. He was let go from there, took a season off, and now he is back with the Pelicans. So to answer your question, I, I'm curious to see his fit. I'm, I'm optimistic. You know, I, I always have a tough time when it's been about 10 years since a coach has had success in the league, and he's coming back to coach again, like the same, same issue that I brought up with doc rivers, like is doc rivers still not, not legacy wise, but still present day NBA, a great coach. I don't know. Let's see how it goes in Philadelphia. The ending of the Clippers there was obviously bad for doc. I am curious, same thing for Stan Van Gundy. I'm a little more hopeful with Stan Van Gundy than I am with doc, just because he now gets to focus in on the coaching He has a great GM there in New Orleans. Uh, So so that's a huge plus. And being a defensive-minded coach, I think, is overall, just generally speaking, a great thing for a younger team. And this is a younger team. They're going to hustle and work harder as long as you earn their respect and they buy into you. So he's going to be trying to earn Zion's respect, obviously, first and foremost. But plenty of other young guys on that team where if they really buy in, they could be one of those sneaky, you know, seven or eight seed teams. That wouldn't shock anybody since they made it to the bubble and nearly made the bubble playoffs. But I like a defensive minded coach on a younger team like this. So I like the fit. What are your thoughts about this hire? Do you, and before we move on props to you, because when you and I talked about Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, I said, I think Mark Jackson is getting hired next. And then almost immediately, I ate my words when I see the NBA alert pop up and Stan Van Gundy gets hired. And that's who you said would get hired. So props to you for predicting that. And uh, what are your thoughts on this hire?
0: Um, my thoughts is Stan Van Gundy, a, he's a player's coach. I think he's in tune to what the players want. I I think he is from the kind of the opposite spectrum of somebody like a Jim Boylan, who's like a hardcore dis- uh, like a discipline coach, um, along with um, Tom Thibodeau. Um, I think Van Gundy's on the opposite side of that spectrum. We'll see if that's going to be effective. And we'll see if he has enough latitude from David Griffin to really build this team. This is a young team um, with, you know, Brandon Ingram, too. Um, Drew Holiday's future is in question. And you have uh, some veterans, like what is going to be the makeup of this team? Are they going to purely build around Zion only? Are they going to, you know, build around Brandon Ingram? And Brandon Ingram was, you know, integral to to that team, you know? I mean, I would say he was their best player, in my opinion, um, on the Pelicans. So even though Zion gets all the attention, um, I don't know, I think, in the long run, what's going to be the long term game plan it's it's a very precarious situation just because a lot of media members players are pushing Zion as the, the face of the league and yet his play so far has been micromanaged. So at Well a point, let's
2: be honest. He he played twenty three games last year. Yes. So he's yeah. he's still gotta prove to everyone that he can play an Correct. NBA season.
0: Yeah. And, and he's not yes. gonna
2: be you can't build around him until he proves that
0: uh, for sure. And I guess that's, that's the precarious situation I'm referring to is just like, right. as much as I like him, as much as I think he's going to be a star in the league, you're exactly Me right. Too. And not only 23 games, to a further point, a minutes restriction, right? It wasn't like he was playing like, you know, the full max minutes <laughs> right. in these games. So we really don't know what this guy could really do and that with this weight, um, with his previous injuries it's a lot of question marks. It's a huge chance that I think could see Stan Mangani easily kind of taking the heat for it, even though it's not necessarily his fault. It's a huge risk. Um, I think the reward, it could be huge, but, you know, it's it's a massive gamble. Well, let's be
2: honest. We should just, we should, instead of calling coaches coaches, we should call them scapegoats at this point. Uh, but, <laughs> but you're spot on there. I mean, if if Zion kind of flames out, which none of us hope to see. Obviously we want to see another budding star into this league and, and maybe, you know, someone to carry the torch, uh, so to speak once, uh, once the LeBron era is over, we we all want to see that, you know, whether that's Giannis or Zion, whoever a combination, of course, more talent, the better, but yeah. Yeah. If, if things with Zion don't work out, I, you know, this, this is a team that still has enough talent on the roster to make the playoffs, which I think initially is going to make the owner happy. But, you know, two to three years down the road, I have, you know, I think of like the Andre Iguodala 76ers, like they were always getting in six, seven or eight seed. I think one year, maybe they had a five seed against the bulls or something like that. Um, But it, it was just a team that could never make that that next jump into the top tier of their conference. So, you know, Zion is clearly going to be the catalyst that will determine, are you an eight seed or are you a top four seed? Um, or, you know, obviously there, there are roster moves to be made and things like that. But I think Zion is your most obvious path to that long term success. And you're absolutely right. Unfair, fairly or unfairly, Stan Van Gundy will take the blame if we're at the, you know, three- year mark maybe even two year mark with the way pressure on these coaches is these days um, Stan van Gundy will definitely take the heat if if they aren't progressing there's with a talent like Zion Williamson there come great expectations and that's that's just unavoidable that he knew the risk coming into this this organization um, so yeah be curious to see what happens I would love to see the Pelicans do well I just think, even even this season, it was kind of a fun sleeper team, uh, sleeper to get in the playoffs anyway. And we we both mentioned and, and felt that excitement of them making it into the bubble at all and just having a chance to fight for the eighth seed. And yes, it was a great disappointment. You mentioned the minutes restriction and all that. But, you know, th- this is another way that this league could get much deeper than it already is talent wise is if Zion has a rise. So let's see if it happens yeah,
0: for sure. Um, let's talk about some beef. Um, and we you just kind of <laughs> don't have to talk about this for too long, um, Dwight right. Howard and Shaq just kind of r- ridiculous, just kind of just always coming up. Um, the story is, is Dwight <laughs> Howard was celebrating Isn't the NBA title, and I think he was a contributor to that team. I mean, he played a massive role um, in the Lakers, you know, winning the championship in the bubble. Yet Shaq had to take some shots at him. And Dwight, from all accounts, from what we both saw, didn't take any shots at Shaq. I don't think was taking any glory away. Was very appreciative of us winning the title, and yet Shaq has to constantly take shots at him. What is the deal with? Shaq and, and Dwight because you know when Shaq had the beef with Kobe, that made sense, right? I mean, these were two co-workers, two alpha males. Um, despite winning three titles, both of them wanted to win more. There's a lot of hostility um with both of them for different reasons. That that made sense and it took years for them to ultimately, you know, squash that beef. But here with Dwight and Shaq, I mean, these two guys weren't teammates. Even though Shaq and Dwight were in in the league at the same time um, for for the latter part of Shaq's career, they're not contemporaries. They're not rivals. So I don't really understand why, despite I uh, may agreeing with some of Shaq's points in the past about Dwight Howard, why he constantly has to always bring this this up. And I guess that's the main question: is what is what can you perceive as Shaq's motivation for constantly having to pick on Dwight Howard?
2: Yeah. Great question. (laughs) I, I think, you know, there's uh, Shaq strikes me as, as someone who really, really, even though he always gets criticism for kind of being more focused or like one foot in the off the court stuff and one foot on, on the court, you know, Kobe famously wanted Shaq to work harder. That's, where they butted heads and ultimately was one of the main factors leading to their split from the Lakers, Uh, Shaq departing the Lakers, that is. So I think even though Shaq has that kind of fun persona, I think we see glimpses of this on TNT from time to time that Shaq really misses that, that player banter, that talking smack, that, you know, I'm going to post you up and dunk it in your face, that competitive nature. And I, I think there's, Maybe a little bit of an insecurity there too, because, you know, you mentioned the previous beef with Dwight and Shaq and it kind of at the time felt to me like Shaq was trying to shut the door on Dwight ever having a chance to be mentioned in the same breath as Shaq legacy wise, which, I mean, if you were watching how things played out, you know, really 2009 was a great year for the magic. We talked about that earlier when we were talking Stan Van Gundy, they made the finals, And that was really the pinnacle of Dwight Howard's career. Since then, injuries, sadly, and had a couple stints, you know, on the uh, Hawks, on the on the uh, Charlotte Hornets, you know, some some really unmemorable seasons where, you know, Dwight's not anywhere in Shaq's league, not even close to touching Shaq, and that's what makes this one so confusing to me, and and also seeing Dwight Howard in that Instagram video, which we were watching just before uh, coming out of the podcast, you know, Dwight wasn't really acting as though he was the reason the Lakers won the title. I I don't think he has it in his mind that like, Oh, without me, this team wouldn't have won the title. He certainly was a big contributing factor to the size of their defense and all that, that we've talked about in, in concerning their playoff run. But I, it's just a really confusing beef. So I guess my best guess would be just that competitive nature from Shaq. And he's kind of petty, like, like how Michael Jordan was. He's, he's much more of a goofball than Michael Jordan. That's, that's for sure. He has
0: that <laughs> side
2: to him as well. But I also think he's still, he's old school in some ways. Um, But, you know, old school would also be kind of like, shutting your mouth and letting your record show itself. So, so I guess we're seeing kind of the social media always got to have a take hybrid of, of Shaq. Uh, and it's, it's not flattering. It's, it's not great when he's, he was constantly now funny at first, but it got to a certain point where it wasn't all that funny anymore that he kept punching down to JaVale McGee, who was also on this Lakers squad. That's true. And now he's punching down to Dwight Howard again And it was really kind of unprovoked. It's not like Dwight Howard called out Shaq in his Instagram video. To me, the weirdest part about the Instagram video is, dude, you just want a title and you're staring at your phone comments, like (laughs) hug (laughs) your teammates, look at that trophy, kiss that trophy like take that moment in, but whatever, you know, it's, it's this generation. So that's my old man take, but <laughs> getting back on, on topic. I mean, do you have any other thoughts as to why Shaq is doing this? I mean, you watch inside the NBA. I, I would say more, more frequently or, or longer than I do. Um, Why, why do you think Shaq acted this way? Is this just to get clicks? Is it a stunt or is, is this genuine?
0: Uh, I don't think it's a stunt. I mean, I mean, Shaq is a pitch man for multiple products and what he, I mean, he can just trip over, you know, a table and he can get, you know, a million views. So, I mean, he can just (laughs) fall and get attention. So I, I, I think it's, it's the old school mentality. I think he's much more of a kind of old school um, player than what people think. Just because of you're right, Shaq is a goofball, and I think he has that kind of mentality like Charles Barkley and Bird and um, Jordan, and I think he's from that same ilk, even though you know he debuted in the early '90s. And I think when he just sees some of these younger players, it just kind of disgusts him. I think all the time you mentioned inside the NBA, he's always railing on players that think they have tons of potential that don't use it. Um, he's uh, he's on Demarcus Cousins' case. Um, he was on somewhat Zion's case a little bit. Um, you know, he's on um, players that, you know, play in the post, you know, he is critical of them because I think his peers, when he was coming up, were, were critical of, of his place. So overall, I think this is pretty petty. I think honestly, he, he's given, I think he's given Dwight actually props, um, during, during the season in particular, when he was, when Dwight was first with the Lakers, um, he actually complimented him in terms of, you know, changing his role, um, adapting to a new um, kind of paradigm shift with um, Anthony Davis. I don't know. This seems pretty petty. It's it's just him throwing shade. I don't think there's any kind of alternative motive to it. I just think it's just Shaq um, just being petty and acting like a little bit like a child at this point.
2: Yeah, just maybe speaking one too many times about something. Yeah. I I agree with you, though. He is one of the more critical analysts out there, which I love since he's one of the, you know, biggest basketball legends around. I I really dig having a critical analyst like that because these players, in my opinion, I'm sorry to say it, but, you know, the media just gives lip service to these players and just praises them anything they say or do. So I, I do like having someone on the more critical side. I appreciated that about Shaq from time to time, but uh, you know, like, like you said, it's just, sometimes he goes overboard with it <laughs> for really yeah. seemingly odd or pointless reasons or non-existent
0: reasons. For sure. Um, so yeah, let's we'll have to wait and, and see where the next saga of this <laughs> beef goes into. Um, one last thing to talk about, and it's an interesting question that J.R. Smith brought up. Um, J.R. Smith was a member of the Lakers uh, championship team, and he was on a podcast uh, with Patrick Peterson and Brian McFadden. Um, this is what he had to say comparing the 2016 Cavaliers and the 2020 Lakers. Quote, I just think the size that the Lakers have, we just didn't have in Cleveland. In Cleveland, we were more grittier. We played, I think, a little harder, and we were much nastier defensively. But with the size of the Lakers' team, with Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard, being able to go back and forth with changing the lineups with Marcus Morris, uh, we weren't that versatile in Cleveland. We could play multiple ways in L.A., but in Cleveland, we only had to play one way. I just think the Lakers' team was just too big. Um, I basically agree agree with them on that. Um and not and I the only thing I actually disagree with them is still from de- a defensive standpoint I actually think the Lakers are are better I just think Agreed. the size I, I think they would handle the Cavaliers fairly easy easier um it's just a huge mismatch just because I think with like the Golden State Warriors that was much more of a team that relied on their perimeter even though their percentages were were insane I mean. At at some point you can, you can go cold from outside outside of the arc. Compared to with the Lakers, I mean, you're just being physical inside, and the Cavaliers have they don't have the personnel to keep up with that. Um, with just four guys this around the seven feet mark or over the seven feet mark, it's just too much. So, I think he's right. Um, do you think these comments were having any kind of consequences him comparing teams? You know how players are sensitive. Is he <laughs> just being honest or do you think like, you know, this, guy, this might be blown out of proportion with somebody?
2: Hmm. I'm trying to think who that could be. I mean, I Kevin yeah. Love is a pretty mellow dude. Kyrie's already taking shots at LeBron this offseason. So I guess my money would be on Kyrie <laughs> because this is kind of you could you could call it maybe like a low grade shot at Kyrie indirectly cuz you're basically saying that you know Anthony Davis is the better wingman which he is to LeBron James than Kyrie Irving so you know if if he takes it that way which I could totally see Kyrie Irving doing then maybe we we have a beef over this which eh, is kind of silly um and I I agree with you I, I do think the 2020 Lakers is a better constructed team with more clearly defined roles. One of the big reasons I I would say that is that, you know, you had LeBron and Kyrie kind of playing the back and forth like you go I go type offense, both playing basically iso ball, and then you had Kevin Love kind of hanging out, not sure what what he's supposed to do and then not being the greatest defensive player. So I think you have more clearly defined roles on this Lakers team. You could argue that you have more talent on the Cavs team. I I, I think that's an argument you can make. I, I might not agree with that fully, but, but they're in reach at least, but the, the clear defined roles makes that 2020 Lakers team better in in my opinion. And the fact that Anthony Davis just blends with LeBron so well, um, and there's seems to be no chemistry issues. I mean, LeBron says, that they have no ego on that team, which is, is kind of silly uh, to <laughs> to say. Um, yeah. Uh, that was a weird statement that a couple weeks ago um, <laughs> we forgot, or I, I forgot to bring it up. But um, but anyway, yeah, I I don't know. I I see Kyrie as the only candidate just because Kevin Love is so mellow. Maybe like Richard Jefferson would have something to say since he's he's in the media in the sports media. Do you think there's Anyone else? Or do you agree with, with either of those guys having some beef about those, those comments?
0: I would say Richard Jefferson. I think that's probably your best candidate. I mean, mm-hmm. even then it's kind of like, it's, you know, J.R. Smith being honest, giving his opinion uh, on this, comparing the teams. Um, I'm, But in terms of everybody else in the media, I, I think even maybe Kyrie, I think the only thing with Jr. Smith, he's not a big enough player. Um, so I don't know if Kyrie would necessarily hear those comments or not. Um, so I think somebody, the most likely, probably Richard Jefferson won and then kind of a distant second Kyrie, if he's just bored on Twitter or something, he just wants to have a cryptic tweet um, about <laughs> players taking off their shirts and they shouldn't be able to t- talk. <laughs> so I think he's um, uh,
2: probably had his fill of LeBron beef for this offseason. season that tweet from earlier during the season when he got mixed up in that jay williams lebron yeah trio kind of triangle stupid yeah <laughs> yeah yes you know the the other great thing about 2020 lakers compared to the Cavs that uh jr didn't mention is that less playing time for jr smith I <laughs> <laughs> the shade is real but I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, like Jr. started That's true. for those 2016 Cavs teams, at, at least at times. And he's pretty much, you know, your your victory player that you're calling out on on the Lakers. Well, he played a little more than that, but not not nearly as much of a role. Oh.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah. He pretty much rode the bench for a, a lot of this run. So he wasn't nearly as a factor as he was in those um, 2016 Cavaliers. Um, wins so it, it's just good to compare and again just to um evaluate lebron's legacy i mean his end of his career um it's going to be just from separate from a jordan goat standpoint it's probably going to be one of the most complex careers to break down just because he is on so many teams there's so many phases to lebron james's career and not only that where he's effective <laughs> and not just effective right. but he's winning titles um it's really unheard of where you see guys go to multiple franchises and, and win championships you just don't you don't see that happen um in the nba so um i think this question is kind of a hint of what's to come when LeBron James finally does retire, you know, I don't know, five, ten years in terms of kind of comparing the eras he was in. And I think that will give you kind of an insight as to, you know, where he fits among the um, rankings of the greatest players of all time. Um, His career is unique in that way. So I think it's gonna be very interesting just to see eventually when he retires how that stacks up.
2: That's a great point. Yeah. He's, he's the Swiss army knife. And another interesting point about that is, you know, you're talking four more years of age on LeBron compared to the 2016 Cavs team. And neither of us thought that was really an issue. I mean, Le- LeBron showed up to play in 2016. He showed up to play certainly in 2020. So we're getting, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit slower of our LeBron, maybe a little, I, we didn't have LeBlanc version two, in the 2020 <laughs> Lakers finals win, but um you know, he's, he's still going to be um a, one of the dominant forces on, on those teams, if not the most um after four years. So that's, you know, another kind of feather in his cap. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, yeah. I mean, with, with LeBron, if you, if you're making like, Goat arguments or even just talking about his legacy in general, it it definitely is a lot more complicated. Like whether you think he's better than Jordan or not, it is definitely a lot more complicated and I think requires a lot more explanation, which which may be a hindrance to him, you know, kind of pulling for GOAT status, is that you you have to take a lot of things and the context around them, <laughs> which which takes a lot more explanation and research potentially um so anyway it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds
0: for sure for sure um that's going to wrap up our show Thanks for listening. As always, um, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, you can check that out. this on our profile page. Check us out on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, check out our past shows. We get a great library of just classic episodes from us. Um, last week we had um, Dwayne Rankin and Harrison Fagan, um, one reporter covering the Phoenix Suns and um, Harrison Fagan covering the Los Angeles Lakers. So if you want to get a sense of really... Um, How the Lakers felt about winning the title. That's an excellent episode to check out. Um, Also, another great interview with Kareth Burke, um, sideline reporter for the Golden State Warriors. She had great insight with um, Steph Curry and um, her thoughts on Steph remaining a warrior for life. Um, So check that out as well. And, of course, we have our review of The Last Dance um, all the episodes are there. So if you're watching that documentary on Netflix, a companion piece, uh, we got you covered. We broke down every one of those episodes as it was happening in real time. So please um, check that out in our archives. Um, and please um, stay tuned for our feed. We have a lot of great um, guests coming up. Um, don't want to spoil anything, but um, the next um, few weeks um, just on this feed going to be fairly exciting um, just for compelling basketball content, um, even though um, the NBA season Um, has concluded. So um, stay tuned for that as well. Um, So for Matt Thomas, I'm Justin Goodrum. Have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you next time. Peace.